okay, because we're all family and we're all whanau. So as uh, Stacy comes up and opens the word to us, we're going to give her a real applause and a woohoo because we love Stacy. Come on, Stacy. Excellent. Off you go. Tēnā koutou katoa, uh, ko rangatuhi te maunga, ko pawatahanui uh, te koko, ko Nāti Pākea te iwi, nō reira he tangata o te tiriti ahau, ko Patterson te hapu, ko Aizi Rawa, ko Ellie May ngā tamariki, engare kei te hapu ahau inainei, ko Sam toku tānei, uh, ko Stacey Hinare toku ingoa, uh, he nehi ahau, nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. <laughs> so, kia ora everybody. Um, so it's becoming more and more commonplace for um, pepihas to be shared um, outside of church, but also inside of church. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, I'm simply introducing myself in Te Reo Māori um, and giving you a bit of background as to who I am. So firstly, I identified Colonial Knob as the mountain and Pawatahanui as the inlet um, that I belong to, simply saying that I was born and raised in the Porirua area. Um, ethnically, I'm Pākehā, uh, New Zealand European, um, and my place in Aotearoa comes from the founding document of this nation, which is the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, Patterson is my maiden name. Um, I have two children, Izzy and Ellie May, um, and if you don't know the word hapu, then I'd encourage you to look it up for a little bit of interesting news about our family. <laughs> uh, Sam is my husband, I'm Stacey, um, I'm a nurse and welcome to everybody. So, um, over the last uh, couple of months we've been working through a book of the Bible called Philippians. Um, and a brief um, look at the book for those of you who need a little update um, is that it was written by a man named Paul who was alive around the time of Jesus and he was a super religious man who hated Christians. However, God suddenly and unexpectedly met with him and he transformed his heart and he became a really significant person of the New Testament. He wrote up to about 13 books of the New Testament and he led mission all throughout the Mediterranean. So this book, called Philippians, is simply just a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. So over the last few months, we've had a lot to learn from this letter, and now today, I've been tasked with looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Actually, I don't have a clicker. Oh, okay. Thank you. Is it just that one there? Yep. Oh, there we go. Cool. So it says, sorry, I don't know why that top bit's a bit smaller. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the Book of Life. So one of the many purposes of the book of Philippians was to exhort the Philippians to humility and to unity based on the same humility that we see from Jesus. And we can see this theme repeated multiple times throughout Philippians. The whole first half of chapter 2 is all about the humility of and the unity that we have with Jesus and then how this works out for us. So for example here, Philippians 2, 1 to 5, says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ any comfort from his love, any common sharing in his spirit, 
Any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we go from this backdrop where Paul is encouraging, he's saying, yes, stand, be like this, stand firm as these things to then these two women in chapter 4 who are clearly in conflict, and it must be a significant one. Paul's aware of it, and it's significant enough for him to sort of call it out in a public way. The first question, I suppose, comes to mind is, what is the disagreement about? Why are they having it? And we simply don't know. But for the purposes of today, um, I want us to consider the idea of worldview and the role that worldview can play in our relationships. We don't know if the argument was a specific worldview issue, but we do know that worldview affects every agreement or disagreement. It can lead to unity or disunity. It affects our mission, how we connect with people, and directly relates to what Paul is asking us to do and the Philippian woman to do, the Philippian church to do, is to be of the same mind in the Lord. So a good place to start is probably with what is worldview. So a person's worldview is just the way that they see and understand the world. It's the way that we perceive and interpret what's in front of us. Dean Fleming, who's the author of a book um, called Contextualization in the New Testament, he says this. He says, worldview, like a pair of glasses, it goes largely unnoticed. Nevertheless, it provides the lens through which people see and make sense of their world. So this lens is made up from a multitude of things. It's from our individual cultures, languages, socioeconomics, our upbringing, our parenting, our education, our social context, our friends, um, the media we're exposed to, any experience. Pretty much every single thing that you're exposed to or take part in affects your worldview. For example, a person raised by, uh, sorry, a single child raised with two parents is going to have a very different perspective on family to a child of four being raised by a single mum. Neither is wrong, but the experience has formed a different perspective or worldview for that person. I know Sam before has shared a Dave Devonish story where while he was in Turkey, uh, some of the locals there asked him to share an example of um, worldview that was relevant to them. So Dave told them that in the West, parents generally put their children to bed after dinner and then they stay out for the remainder of the evening by themselves. But their response is, do they not love their children? <laughs> I think it's valid. Um, <laughs> education, um, too, shapes our worldview. So I'm a nurse I'm working in the public health unit with infectious diseases, and um, so over my time there, I've um, gained knowledge and experience. I understand processes and outcomes, and I've worked with individuals in that place. So tomorrow, if you went to your GP and I went to my GP and we both got a diagnosis of TB, your response is going to probably be significantly different to mine. Would the information being presented be any different? No. But my knowledge has influenced my worldview on healthcare and disease. Another example um, really was this morning. So I introduced myself with my pepeha. Uh, and then I interpret it, and I did that on purpose, and that's because the order of the pepeha compared to an English sort of standard Western um, introduction is actually a big reflection on cultural worldview. So 
So if I was in, in English, I was to pop up and introduce myself. It usually would start with me. So I'm Stacey, this is my family, and this is what I do. Switch that to a pepeha, the introduction seems to start on the out and work its way in. So mountains, rivers, a place, things greater than myself, community, tūranga waiwai, my extended family, my nuclear family, and then me. So a Western worldview, you know, that's perhaps more about efficiency and the individual, opposed to a Māori worldview that prioritises community and connection. You know, I'm telling you things outside of myself to build a relationship, to see if we can identify, to see if we can make connections in our family or our history. So as you can see, worldview is simply not um, black and white or right and wrong. It's just a perspective, an interpretation. So in that case, why is it relevant to us? And how does it impact, impact us, and specifically as Christians? The simple answer is that it affects every part of your life. It affects the way you approach the Bible, the way you interpret the scriptures, how you understand or relate to the Holy Spirit or relate to the person of Jesus. Um, and as, since we're considering this verse about the disagreeing woman, um, will you affect the relationships that we have with each other? And that's kind of the focus I want to have this morning. Again, just reminding you that everything that we see, everything we think, we do, we understand, is done so through the lens of our worldview. And as Christians, we're no exception to that. I've been um, doing a workplace leadership course recently, and through this, I've been learning a lot about how, as humans, we're these amazing storytellers. So in order to give things meaning and purpose, we're always interpreting and creating a narrative for what's going on. And we're doing it just without even thinking about it. So worldview is our story. It's us making sense of everything that we're exposed to. We add value, we add meaning to it, and then we bring that background story with us. And then with every event or change or interaction that we have, we refer to that backstory and then update our new story in line with that. So a question you might ask now is, as Christians, do we not just have one or share the same worldview? And so Dean Fleming from that book addresses this again, saying that whenever people embrace the truth of the gospel, they must do so in relation to their pre-existing worldview and patterns of relationship if it's going to carry any meaning for them. So I would personally argue, and I think the quote would probably support, that there is no single Christian worldview. I don't think we could ever establish exactly what that looks like. Every Christian, every theologian in history applies their worldview or their backstory as they approach the scriptures. However, and it's a really important however, I would argue, of course, that there are core foundational beliefs that as Christians you need to believe in in order to be a Christian. Principles that are clearly taught in the Bible that are shared by all Christians. And these principles impact and influence our worldview, but our worldview is not limited to those beliefs either. For example, Jesus says in John 4, 16, that no one comes to the Father except through me. These um, here, Jesus doesn't really leave much room for interpretation, and a belief in Jesus is foundational to being a Christian. The ASA, which is an international network of Christians working in science, they say this about Christian worldview. The major parts of a Christian worldview are shared by all Christians. These similarities occur because a Christian worldview is based on principles clearly taught in the Bible. However, an individual's Christian worldview is not only influenced by their beliefs and faith, but by other factors, experiences, values, habits, all the things we've kind of spoke about earlier. And these factors vary from person to person. 
Therefore, it's not accurate to talk about the Christian worldview, but we can think of the belief shared by all Christians as being the Christian worldview component. Okay. So, we have, um, so we've realised that we've kind of got a shared and an individual worldview. And so what's the point in knowing this? Because as it likely affected Euodia and Syntyche's relationship, it too affects our relationships. Um, now, before I get stuck into this, can I just say that I'm using examples throughout this morning, um, and I don't want to at all express any of my own personal opinions, um, so please don't hear what I'm not saying and give me the benefit of the doubt if you hear something you don't like, as it can be quite hard to explain the subject neutrally. But there are plenty of ways that um, worldview affects our church community. One example, though, that maybe affects um, some of us every single week when we meet together is the issue of our dress code on a Sunday, particularly that of the leaders up the front or those visible. So issues I know from talking with people, issues have been raised around how difficult it can be for some to see leaders up here in their shorts and their T-shirts and their um, singlets, or, and so much so that for some it actually creates a barrier that they don't feel like they can even bring people along to church. For some, and I'm presuming it's more of a Western world view, is that we're entitled to this freedom. You know, we can wear what we like, it's all about grace, God accepts us as we are, and we don't need to conform. But for those concerned, it's about presenting ourselves to an awesome God with the utmost respect, including the way that we present ourselves. So is one perspective right? Or is one perspective wrong? Or is it worldview? I could argue that both are actually right. They both have uh, biblical uh, kind of argument to support what their views are, and they both have the right heart about them. Another example could perhaps be about our approach to sharing Jesus with others. I know for Sam and I, it's often an area of intense discussion. Um, Sam's perspective is we must share the gospel. You know, the gospel is the greatest love that anyone can receive. Let's serve people in order to make a way for the gospel. My perspective is a little bit different. I say, you know, like, let's love. God created the person. They're valuable and worth respect. Let's meet their need and love that person without condition, without agenda. The agenda being that I'll serve you because I then want something back from you or to tell you something. I don't want to take away from the importance of the gospel at all because it is obviously incredibly important. But the approach is different. Are either of us wrong? Um, is either of us more right than the other? And before you answer it as a rhetorical question, <laughs> I don't want to vote. Um, but what makes you choose one method over the other? Maybe it's your passion, maybe it's your experience, or maybe it's your worldview. Also, as I share these examples this morning, I'm trying to highlight real issues um, so we can understand the realness of worldview in our church context and our everyday life. But I don't want the takeaway message to be that you can just feel justified in your worldview. We can choose to challenge and we can choose to change our thinking in our worldview. So if you're hearing some of these examples and you're having a really like strong opinionated response, I would encourage you to question why. You can still be you, but maybe ask God to soften your heart and to understand that a little bit more. The reason I gave a quick brief on Paul earlier is that he too had a worldview. He had a backstory. However, he does have an incredible awareness of the role of worldview and the significance it has on our relationships and the way we connect with other people. One of his greatest strengths was arguably that he was able to preach across worldview. He was able to recognise key aspects of someone's worldview 
contextualise the gospel and other teachings to make an understandable, approachable bridge between the hearer and the message. So, for example, in Acts 17, Paul was speaking to a crowd in Athens. The general worldview of religion in that place was a belief in multiple gods. Paul, being aware of this worldview, presented God to the people by referencing an altar of an idol or another god in that place called the unknown god. And he used that as a segue to then speak of our one true God. Paul was aware of their worldview and used it to make a bridge so that they could better hear and better understand the message that he was presenting. So, if we recognise that worldview is a thing, that it influences the church, if Paul writes in a manner and behaves in a manner that seems to recognise worldview as a thing, then what does Paul mean when he tells these women, and in effect us, to be of the same mind? How as unique individuals can we be of the same mind, or as it's phrased earlier in Philippians, have the same mindset of Christ? So my initial thought when I read it was we have to think the same as each other, we have to be in agreement. all our perspectives and priorities need to be in line with each other, we're kind of these replicated, perfected Christians. Um, but thankfully, this is not what Paul is saying at all. The concept um, of being the same in mind is actually repeated by Paul a number of times throughout his letters in the New Testament. So, <laughs> so we've got Romans 15, 5 to 6. He talks about, um, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says... Uh, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. 2 Corinthians. Uh, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. Philippians 2.2. 2, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have a, one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And then the verse we're looking at today, you know, uh, Paul's pleading, saying, be of the same mind in the Lord. So it's clearly a really important concept. Uh, but what does Paul mean? So remembering that Philippians is a letter, and although we kind of examine chapters or verses individually, they're in fact part of a bigger teaching of the entire letter. So when we approach chapter 4 about Euodia and Syntyche, we need to do so in the context of what's already come before. So Paul confirms this. He begins chapter 4 by saying, therefore, or, you know, on the back of what I've said, now this. So looking back, I believe it's chapter 2 that provides us with the insight of what it means to be of the same mind. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any common sharing in his spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
to be of the same mind is not to have a uniformity of thought, but rather to share a common goal to love and serve in the same way that Jesus chose to do so. And so in what way does he do that? So, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was fully God, yet he laid aside his glory to humbly become a man. He then humbles himself again, not only becoming a man, but taking on the nature of a servant. And although a servant, he was perfect and sinless, and he humbled himself again to die as a cursed man, carrying your sin. And all the while, while on a cross, the height of humiliation, the most degrading form of execution. Jesus serves and loves us through humility. Paul is calling Euodia and Syntyche to humility. Paul is calling us to humility. Trying to find a definition of um, humility was actually really hard, certainly from a sort of dictionary point of view, that all the definitions were about um, not being proud by remembering your bad qualities. It spoke of low self-esteem or low importance of yourself. And I don't think any of those definitions really come close to explaining what we're looking at today. I don't see Jesus being humble by having low self-esteem. Um, he knew who he was. And so we too, we can know our value. Humility doesn't come from treating ourselves poorly, but rather the opposite. When we know who we are in God, when we can find security in him, we're all the more free to be humble. Yeah. And when we're humble, we don't necessarily have to agree. We don't necessarily have to hold the same opinions in order to get along. We don't have to prove anything or hold on to anything like it's ours. We can get along fine. We can be of the same mind even if we don't agree. Paul is reminding the Philippian woman in this verse to remember Jesus, to remember to keep the main thing the main thing, to seek humility, to be of the same mind as Christ, where humility and servanthood are at the centre of his being. So, worldview is relevant. It's involved in every thought, action, relationship that we have. It's important to be aware of so it doesn't hinder us or limit our growth or relationships. But it's also to, important to be aware of as we can make positive changes and challenge our worldview. And although there is no one single Christian worldview, I think it's important to keep checking your worldview and thinking against the Bible too. Nobody is exempt from having a worldview. Not me, not you, not our leaders, not our elders, not Paul. And just as Paul is exhorting the Philippian woman, we too are reminded to lift our gaze to Jesus. Unity comes through humility and through servanthood. So if I can ask Jack to come up, um, and I'll pass back to Pete in a second, but can I just finish um, by saying that now going forward, as we're all hopefully heightened to each other's worldviews and hopefully we'll challenge each other and be open and listen to one another, but life will still happen, and so we, it's you know, likely that we're going to rub each other up the wrong way. But I would encourage us to seek humility to remember the common ground that we share, which is Jesus. Everything else is less important than Jesus. Remember Jesus. Keep the main thing, Jesus. You need humility, then Jesus. Humility is not just something that you can do. It's not something you can just kind of create within yourself. Rather, you look at him, you look at Jesus, you realize who he is, you remember what he's done for you, and you're humbled.
Why don't we stand and let's respond to this?